Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. This is episode 91 of the Uncapped Podcast, and I'm your host, Chris Sands. This week we have... Uh, someone who's been a guest many times from Flying Dog Brewery, Ben Savage, the Chief Marketing Officer. Hello, Ben. Hello. Thanks for having us. And um, also we have another Ben, Ben Clark, Brewmaster, first-time guest. Thank you for joining us. Sure, Chris. Thanks for having me. And we're going to talk, one of the things we want to talk about today is the throwback pack. And these are, I guess, some of Flying Dog's very original beers. And also, um, coming up next week, the on the 29th, I think, there will be a beer dinner at Roast House Pub featuring the Throwback Pack and um, I think one of the Gonzo variants, or is it just Gonzo? I think it is a Gonzo variant. Right. Yeah. So, Ben Savage. <laughs> <laughs> you could just so go. We actually go by last names at the okay. breweries. So. So at at one time though there was like what thirty to forty Bens working at Flying Dog six yeah it was actually actually pretty funny we um, <laughs> when you sent the meeting invite for this podcast you said it's raining Bens and yeah. we actually did a beer back in the day with all the Bens that collaborated um, there were seven at one time I think one was a, a BJ so but it turns right. out he was a yeah. Ben so and at one <laughs> moment uh, randomly in the office we had in I think Ben Hirsch's office. All of us got together. All we the Ben's. Ben Weiser, and it was like this weird superhero <laughs> moment where all the rings came together and all seven Bens. And now it's just, well, we're down to it's just me and you, I think. So yeah. you're the last Bens standing. We are. Now we have multiple Brian's and maybe a few. Uh, what else do we have? Yeah, Brian's have taken over. Brian's. We have at least four or five Brian's. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I was the only Chris here for the longest time, and then all of a sudden he decided to hire, hire a whole bunch of them. So now we don't have any. We had we had Kristens and Chrissies for a while there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do we have a Chris? We probably have a Chris somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, Chris Farley. Oh, Farley! <laughs> How can you forget that name? Yeah, there's Chris someone Farley. There. Chris oh, Farley. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, I almost feel bad for him having that name though. Yeah, I mean it's like the what the office space, right? With a Michael, yeah, Michael, Michael Bolton. Bolton is like, well, why don't you just go by Mike? I don't why should know. I change my name? <laughs> He's the one that sucks. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, it could be worse. It could be Michael Bolton. Yeah. I mean, Chris Farley is pretty awesome, you know, pretty awesome hero in my world, at least uh, comedically. <laughs> so I think it's a great name. All right. So um, I guess enough about human names. Let's talk beer names and the throwback pack. Because, one, I guess we should just. Let's run down each beer and talk about it a little bit, and then uh, Mr. Savage has great antidotes for the artwork, the name, slogans for each beer that I I enjoyed hearing. Yeah, I guess I'll I'll start before we get into the beer though. The the concept itself, you know, you know, people may be familiar with how we come up with our brew house rarity series, and we go out to a mountaintop and everyone the brewery has an opportunity to pitch an idea and sometimes you get of the hundreds of ideas for beers pitched you also get some concepts pitched and for several years several years now i'd say prior to even last year the the idea of a throwback pack 
you know, the idea of, of re-releasing some retired beers, you know, we're obviously a business and we have to uh, make some tough decisions with, with beloved beers that may not be part of our future or for whatever reason, the consumer taste profiles don't, aren't, aren't uh, screaming for amber lagers or whatever. And so we have to, you know, we have to retire beers and, and we have a, quite a stable of retired beers. And so as, as that stable keeps building, that you know people have pitched many at least three years in a row the idea like let's come back with a pack that re-releases some of these Mm -hmm. beloved beers from our history and 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 kind of shines a light on our our legacy and our heritage as a 28 year old brewery and so you know it actually wasn't hard of the you know dozens of beers we've retired over the years these four you know really came came to the the forefront of the four we really wanted to launch the pack with because a lot of these beers were were uh, you know in the 90s and you know early on in the, in the brewery's existence and so well when when you came first when flying dog first came to frederick there really weren't that many more beers than these originally these original four in the flying dog lineup were there yeah i recall i mean i wasn't I and mean, it was snake dog and snake, doggy style, doggy and style. Gonzo okay. at those times but i don't you might have had Horn and Kerberos. Yeah, yeah. Horn, yeah, Horn was Kerberos a full-time. Kerberos came on some point pretty early there. And, yeah, I can't remember if Woody <coughs> Creek. I think Woody Creek was there when yeah, I Woody got there. Creek, Woody Creek was around. I'm sure there's probably one or two others we're not thinking of, but that's that's most of the lineup. Canine may have been there. Yeah, Canine. Yeah, was. Canine Cruiser yep. was there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, your seasonals were, or our seasonals were basically Canine, Woody, and Dogtoberfest. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the seasonal lineup. Um, so yeah, it made a lot of sense. And we have, you know, and I know Chris, you're, you're very familiar with a lot of these beers, but you know, underdog and Woody Creek and Wildeman, a lot of beers were guard dog, uh, mm-hmm. comes up pretty frequently. A lot of these beers were, you know, let's bring those back. Let's bring us back at least in a limited release. So, you know, throwback pack, I think is a, is a cool concept that we, you know, might do every year or, or maybe even release, um, just a retired beer as a, as a throwback issue. Um, just because there are. You know, maybe these brands weren't growing when we retired them, or maybe we had to make a tough decision. But there still are thousands and thousands of fans out there who write in every day asking mm-hmm. for Road Dog <laughs> and Heat Wheat and Old Scratch, and and you know, I think it's good to kind of um, get the beer back out there if 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 at all limited. So Ben, why don't you tell Ben Clark? Mm-hmm. This is gonna get old quick. I'll just go with last names. Clark. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, Let's just do a quick rundown of what each beer is because, I mean, it's quite – these have been retired long enough that people new to craft beer probably aren't familiar with them. Sure. Because how long have – I mean, it's – I'd say the last one was probably – or the, I guess the most recent retired beer was In Heat Wheat. In Heat Wheat, then Scratch, then Road Dog. Tire's been away the longest, I think. Tire we retired soon after I came on board in 2010, so that was probably okay. the – the most distant one yeah so i i go back with the brewery about 12 years now and these all these beers were really like you like you were saying they're the core of what flying dog was at the time so these are all kind of nostalgic for me um it's interesting going back and tasting these beers now and it's just like it's the exact same beer that it was all those years ago um but you're right, a lot of people probably aren't familiar with these beers. So running through them quickly, Tire Bite is essentially, it was our light, <clears throat> it was a light ale. Uh, we called it a golden. Essentially, your easy drinking beer it comes in at 5.1%. Um, 
see it almost as that gateway beer into craft a little bit. It, it kind of fills that, that void. Um, old scratch, amber lager. Um, you're getting a little more malt complexity here than you would get in something like the tire bite. Again, it's uh, an amber, so get some of that caramel coming through in the beer. Um, low ABV at 5.5. Five. So that that is the one that takes <clears throat> me back to... 2008-ish time frame where mm. I was coming the flying dog when they weren't necessarily following Maryland's laws and <laughs> I would go to the tap room and um, I think it was uh, $5 and I was able to taste in air quotes as much as I wanted <laughs> and I drank a lot of Old Scratch at that time. That was back when, like, I found uh, Snake Tog to be disgusting because uh-huh. right, like, yeah. yep. that was... Uh, I think before that, um, probably the most, the, the only other craft beers I had had were uh, Sam Adams Oktoberfest and maybe Sam Adams Lager because I didn't drink for a long time, mm-hmm. any alcohol at all. And that was right around the time where hmm. I met my wife and then started drinking. Uh, those are independent. I think so, but <laughs> my, my brother-in-law and I also joke because he also did not drink before marrying my wife's sister. <laughs> so, and then started drinking right around the same time. Wow! All right. So it can be complete coincidence. It may not be. Uh, no one can say for sure. But yes, it was. The, it, they coincided. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Old Scratch was the first Flying Dog beer that I had had. Mother-in-law had picked it up, and, uh, you know, they obviously the beer was coming out of Denver at that time, so I wasn't familiar with the brand at all. And I can clearly remember the six-pack and where I had it in the fridge and, every you know, drink, drinking the beer. Um, in fact, it's probably the earliest craft beer drinking, like specific to a brand, like craft beer that I remember outside of, like, grabbing something, uh, you know, on tap. Um, well, I remember I had um, I don't know, like five or six growlers of Old Scratch watching the Steelers <coughs> win the Super Bowl in hmm. 2008. Hmm. Wow. That was what I mean, like Old Scratch is what I drank then. They, and like I told you right before I started, like that was what got Old Scratch is what got me into craft beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I just realized that I'm sitting here with two Steelers fans, yep. which is I know <laughs> I love it. Um, I almost <laughs> I wouldn't have I wouldn't have signed on had it come to mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh in heat wheat obviously it's uh traditional these these beers kind of fall into your traditional style within your style guidelines a little bit more than maybe some of our beers do uh today you know we we usually talk when we're when we're talking about recipe development and what the beer looks like tastes like smells like maybe even feels like with the mouthfeel and everything more so than we do like what what style beer is it um these beers you know, coming from almost a different time where you had like reds, blacks, ambers, blondes, um, and a wheat beer. So this, this is a traditional German style wheat beer. It, the recipe itself was actually made by, or created by Eric Warner. Who's the guy who wrote the book on, on the style really. Um, it's very traditional, large percentage of wheat malt. Um, it's getting a nice banana clove character from the yeast. So comes in at 4.7%. So it's an easy drinker. I need to correct myself real quick. That was the 2008 season, but I watched them winning mm. in 2009. I'm sure <laughs> if the Steelers are winning the Super Bowl, I was drinking mu- something much stronger than beer. <laughs> 
And last up is uh, Road Dog. So that's a porter. Obviously, much darker. You're going to have you know some of that chocolate and roasted malt coming through in that beer. Um, there's some good stories with that. I'll, I'll hold off on that for, for Ben. He, he can probably paint that with a little better picture with a little more color than I can. But this one comes in at, uh, you know, around 6%. And this of, of the pack is probably the one that's talked about the most in the brewery. Um, Road Dog, whenever it was, when it was retired, you know, soon after we came out with uh, Pearl Necklace. <clears throat> and some of the diehard Road Dog fans were not so much fans of, of Pearl. And this was a good opportunity to taste those beers side by side, uh, fresh. So we set up some blind tastings, and it's it's interesting now how much the guys have turned because they're all Pearl fans over the uh, over the Road Dog. So that was kind of cool was to that? see. There was a mixed a beer blend with Road. What was it? Oh yeah. So the guys usually it was the uh, the overnight crew when they would get off work in the morning they would go out and do a fifty fifty split of Raging Bitch and Road Dog and make Road Rage. Uh, so that would be their that would be their drink in the morning before heading out for the day. It's <laughs> <laughs> good morning. For the drink. morning commute, yeah. <laughs> no, co- no coincidence with the name at all. <laughs> so, how did you pick those three to be part of the throwback pack? It was it because they were these so were, much part of the original lineup, or is it you just? These were the nostalgic beers. These were the first ones that come to mind. They were pretty much the they were the pillars. Mm-hmm. Originally, yeah, you have beers like Wildeman, Kerberos has talked about a lot, Guard Dogs talked yeah. about. So there are these beers that kind of are that next that next tier. But these these are the ones that probably had the widest reach that the most people would be familiar with. And for me, like Tire Bite was the first beer that I, I my first day at the brewery, I sent Tire Bike into Tire Bite into a fermenter. My first day in the brew house it was the first beer I brewed. Like it was a staple at the brewery. Um, so these beers are the ones that I think everyone internally had the most memory surrounding and i think externally people would connect with the most just from historically yeah i think at the end of the day whether there was emotion attached to other beers retired i, I think if you're going to pick four beers i think the the four that were the hardest to retire yeah sure were these and um it's great to see them back I, you know as an aside it was interesting we we've gone through a bit of a brand redesign um, since retiring these beers, and so to <laughs> to kind of come back out with them, uh, if you're really nostalgic and you remember what Tire Bite and Old Scratch and and Road Dog look like uh, with the really glossy labels and the blue bottle cap, if you recall that, yeah. <laughs> so to kind of come back out with them and then also have to sort of reskin them so they fit in with what we feel is is brand representative today was was an interesting and uh, unique experience for uh, for the marketing team, I'm sure. Did you think did did you ever decide to try to just make them look like they did originally, or was it <laughs> we just did not actually? Feasible? It's a it's a good point. We thought that that is maybe what we should do, and then we thought, well, if they look like that, is there is there a risk that people actually think they were the originals and it's just <laughs> really old beer on the shelf? So we opted no. Let's refresh them a little bit, and if we had them today, what would they look like? And so we went down that road instead of, uh, look what I found a tire bite and the date codes from 1995. That would not be good. So. I, yeah. I don't think that old of a tire bite would taste. Very good. <laughs> That's, yeah. I don't think most beers would. The, um, you've, you've mentioned Wilderman a couple of times. That's a beer that I miss. And I don't know, like I love that beer and mm. I don't know if it was 100% like how much, I enjoyed actually drinking the beer as opposed to the video that came out <laughs> to, f- during the release. Uh, yeah. 
Because I, I, I urge people to go on to uh, YouTube and search for <laughs> Flying Dog Wildeman and watch the... Yeah. I assume that's still there, right? Yeah, I yeah. think I think with Wildeman, uh, it's something we wrestle with a lot, and I know I'm sure Ben wrestles with it too, is that, you know, we, we, we fashion ourselves pretty nimble and adaptive and flexible, and we try to try to understand what our fans really want. But sometimes that flexibility can also lead to maybe not committing or at least, you know, we wonder sometimes if beers would retire, like Wildeman would be an example, even Underdog would be an example of like, you know, were they a little ahead of their time? And maybe by just like one year, and if we stuck with them, you know, would they have blossomed into something? But, you know, a little bit reactionary, you, you always, you know, second guess yourself a little bit. But Wildeman, I mean... It was a. It was basically a, a hopped, hopped out saison. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have been a little early. Uh, it may have had more traction today. I'm I'm certain that something like Underdog uh, yep. would be a very well received today. And you know, the craft beer fan is a is an evolving species. And uh, sometimes you know, I wonder, you know, I wonder if we would have stuck with something that you know would have been better, but. You, know, you got to make decisions. Maybe you can come back out. Maybe you missed our window, but that's all part of the business, I guess. That was a ri- that was like originally a collaboration beer with a had something to do with a European distributor, right? So Inde Wildeman is like the uh, one of the most heralded craft beer bars in Amsterdam, and they were celebrating. They were a great account of ours. Were very well received in in the Netherlands and. They were celebrating, I want to guess, maybe their 25th 20, anniversary? I, I 20th? 20, it's in, yeah, it's up there. And they had asked us to do a beer to celebrate, and we did um, We did Wildeman, and it was, uh, I think it was only in, what, 750s maybe in draft? Or, yeah. We was, did a couple three was, liters? It was very limited. I do remember Two that. Two liters, maybe. I remember. It was the first beer that we used this, like, new up-and-coming hop called Citra in, you know, <laughs> like, back in the day. Cutting it was edge. like, yeah. And it was like, we loved it. And that was all we had of it, you know. It was, it was gone. Yeah, and it was like unfiltered, and mm-hmm. um, and then you know we went through a name change too right before we retired. Like we thought maybe I don't know. This is peeling back the curtain a little bit too much, but um, <laughs> it was a was it a farmhouse IPA? That sounds right. Yeah, I think that was that the was yeah. Yeah, that's what it was definitely. And then I think we changed it right before we retired it because we thought farmhouse maybe wasn't resonating, and we changed it to like maybe American saison because yeah. we thought people wanted saisons and we could attach American to it, which is the hop forward, right? Aspect, yeah. Basically, admitting that all Americans do to craft beer is just they can't help themselves but to add <laughs> hops to everything. So we thought maybe American, so. yeah, we thought maybe American saison <laughs> would be a better descriptor. And I think right as we. Right as we changed the name, I think we were just like, we 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 need to make room for some other beer at that point. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I missed that beer too, though. Yeah, it was good. That was one of those beers I was surprised by because I, like I, I had said before we started, I don't like Saison's, but I really liked Wildeman. Mm-hmm. Probably because it was hopped like crazy. So <laughs> That's it, right. That's what we do. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, we're going to take a real quick break to thank our sponsors. And then when we come back, I want to hear the stories um, behind the labels and the names uh, for the throwback pack. A huge thank you to our presenting sponsor, Roast House Pub, which is located at 5700 Urbana Pike in Frederick, Maryland. If you have listened to this podcast before, you have definitely heard me go on and on about the beer dinners that Chef Nico creates. Simply put, they are amazing. 
but Roast House Pub has much more to offer. Their friendly staff is knowledgeable about beer and will help you choose from among the 20 beers they have on tap. In addition to the awesome beer selection, the food is always amazing. Make sure to follow them on Facebook and check their website at www.roasthousepub.com to keep up to date on their constant stream of events. And thank you to our supporting sponsor, Craft Alliance Packaging Solutions. Craft Alliance Packaging Solutions has been serving the craft beverage industry since 2012 and prides itself in helping their customers excel in a constantly growing industry. From concept to cooler, CAPS offers solutions to your packaging needs, providing mobile bottling services, technical support, keg repair, rental bright tanks, and much more. It is their goal to help you grow your brand and your business and make your product stand out. Be different look different. For more information, visit capsbottles.com. So Ben Savage, you, um, you, you were talking to a group, uh, I think it was a week or so ago, the best group, the, the <laughs> best group. Um, and you told a couple stories of throughout the, th- the throwback pack that I really enjoyed. So I'd, I'd love for you to share those. Yeah. So, you know, there's a story with every one of our beer, uh, styles that we have and um, these are no exception these are you know legacy beers for us so there's probably more stories than I even know uh, you know I've been with the company eight years and, and the, some of these beers are over 20 years old so um, you know a tire bite there's there's kind of a, a fun story you know we were in Colorado at the time and there was only maybe a dozen breweries at the time now there's 200 uh, <laughs> or so um, and there was, you know, I think friendly rivalries with some some of the local breweries, and I think the name itself, Tire Bite, um, and the bicycle on it was, uh, legend has it, it was a it was a direct shot at maybe a competing brewery that um, that has a bicycle as a prominent feature in their logo. I don't usually <laughs> call out any breweries by name, but I'm sure you could do the math. Um, and you know, it was also just, has a marquee beer with tire in the name of it. Right, so might be able to <laughs> narrow that down. I think uh, you know, it was a, it was a, I think it was a friendly jab at at uh, a, a competing brewery, and you know, a funny story about the artwork. I think was originally drawn by Ralph on a on a napkin. Uh, it was so low res, and we had to ask him to go back and and do some high res, and even even then, it's still a little. Um, a little bit lower res than most of uh, the artwork that we get from Ralph, but it was originally called Tire uh, Biter uh, <laughs> was the original name, and I don't know how long that lasted, but yeah, I think no. we got enough consumer feedback that it's clear that a lot of consumers don't read properly, <laughs> maybe, and uh, they thought it was Tire Bitter, and it's not a bitter beer, and they wouldn't purchase it because they they weren't into bitter beers, and it so was false advertisement. If they did want a bitter beer, they were yeah they were <laughs> distraught. So um, we ended up going with Tire Bite, and it's um, you know it it really harkens back to the days in Denver, and I think what our brewery um, once was back there in the early stages of of development, and how. Even back then, there was some uh, good competitive uh, nature between the breweries in Denver. Um, Old Scratch, you know, that that's a, a multi-medal winner. I don't know, ben probably knows exactly how many medals that, that beer's won, but the, no, the story don't. behind that... <laughs> <laughs> the story behind that is really what we tell... You know, Old Scratch is a, is a nickname for the devil, um, and it was also one of our founders, George Stranahan's nickname for some reason. I don't know if those are related, but... Um, I think, uh, we had asked, uh, Ralph Stebbin, our, uh, you know, world famous Gonzo illustrator who does all of our labels, um, to draw, um, 
uh, fleas um, uh, or some scene that would illustrate a dog scratching or fleas with a dog or whatever. And he did, as he is is uh, often to do, just drew whatever was in his head. And he actually drew very detailed fleas, like the actual bug. And, uh, you know, I think when we got the artwork back, we we're like, well, this is very, very great, Ralph. And um, But nobody wants, you know, to drink beer with fleas on it. Can, can you make the fleas look more like dogs because that fits with flying dog. And at least if they're bugs, maybe we can make them look like dogs. And, um, as he's, as he's often to do, he just, um, as maybe a nice little, uh, middle finger to us, he just ended up drawing <laughs> dog feet on the fleas that he'd already drawn. So <laughs> we always laugh when we see the artwork cause, uh, you know, Ralph is always, um, Ralph is an artist and sometimes we lose, sight of the fact that we want artwork to look a certain way because we control uh, an aesthetic and a look and a business of like naming beers and stylizing beers but he's an artist and so he just draws what's in, what inspires him and and he's often you know he wants to say he's never really said it he wants to say you know if you know exactly what you want you can draw it yourself but i'm an artist i'm going to draw what i want to see and um you know we're not always like sure if it'll work uh when we initially get the artwork but by the time it makes it on a label we've already fallen in love with it so we we ended up we end up loving everything that ralph does for us and he's such a, a great inspiration to what we do as a business so that story behind old scratch is basically like he took fleas and just put dog feet on them and that is <laughs> what became old scratch so uh any wheat not a not a big story about the artwork as much as um you know this was a beer that uh, kind of forced us to exit a state uh, for no other reason than our own uh, principles. You know, I'll read the the label copy that got us a little bit into trouble. Um, we spent a lot of time on our label copy. We wanted to be poetic and inspirational and weird and edgy and irreverent. Um, this is the label copy for, for In Heat Wheat. Uh, a sword swallower taunts the crowd as they chant deeper, deeper. The ringing in your ears fades as you notice the mouse traps on his nipples, the air smells like clove and your mouth is wet with banana. Either you are the, in the best goddamn bar in the States or you just took a, your first sip. So, you know, that may seem relatively um, benign, I guess. Uh, it's a little bit odd for a label copy on a beer, but the word goddamn got us in trouble with uh, the state of Tennessee, at least not the state government, but um, our wholesaler there was not impressed with our us <laughs> taking uh the lord's name in vain and so now to your credit though it is a lowercase it is lowercase it's one word so it's more like a just slang thing than actually insulting anybody's um um you know greater power in their life but i you know our wholesaler took objection and we weren't willing to change it certainly not for one state or one wholesaler and it's who we are as everyone probably knows by now we, we stick to our guns with that kind of thing and we just decided not to ship beer there anymore. So we haven't been in Tennessee since that label copy was born. So, and since we've retired in heat wheat, but uh, I'm sure we'll get back into Tennessee at some point, but uh, you know, there's probably not, maybe there is as much objection to the word goddamn now as there is, as there was back then, maybe yeah, more. Probably, yeah, I was going to say that may have been <laughs> amplified some. So that was kind of the story within Heat Wheat. It's a, it's an interesting label. It's a little bit of a departure from Ralph's typical artwork. It's you should just ship a bunch of the throwback pack to that distributor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Hey, remember this beer? Um, 
it, you know, it's it's interesting artwork. There's multiple dogs, and it's um, you know, it's got a pretty clever name, I think. Um, but yeah, I think to Ben's point, though, uh, beyond the label or the artwork or the copy or anything, I think it is the it is a premier uh, wheat beer, uh, German Hefeweizen, and it's it's one of the best out there. So it's great to see it come back. Road Dog, probably one of the biggest um, legacy beers for us. One of the first beers we ever did, and you know, really was you know what's important. What's uh, interesting about Road Dog is it was the first label that Ralph did. So not many people know it, but um, we started in 1990. There was at least five or six years there where uh, Ralph wasn't involved in doing the label art. Um, if you uh, search online, <laughs> you can see a doggy style back in the day yeah, that yeah. isn't Ralph artwork and. <laughs> Um, so 1996, I believe, this is the first label he did for us. And Road Dog is a nickname for uh, somebody that uh, has done time or is doing time in prison. There may, legend has it, there may have been a friend of the brewery that uh, was doing time in prison, inspiration for this beer. Um, and so Ralph drew what looks like a person in prison, or at least it's a person or a dog that has a shirt that maybe looks like a referee, but I think those are meant to symbolize <laughs> prison bars. Um, but the most interesting thing about this artwork is that, you know, he just sort of offhandedly scribbled a little tagline on there that has since been one of our taglines that we use, good beer, no shit. And legend has it that another competing brewery um, in Denver, uh, maybe similar brewery, um, <laughs> legend has it, I don't know for sure, uh, somebody ratted us out uh, and said that that is uh, profanity or or obscenity or whatever on the label that you'd have the word shit on the label. And um, so the Col state of Colorado banned the label and it cost us a quarter million dollars, which, you know, back in the nineties is not unsubstantial. It would hurt today uh, very much uh, to pull all that beer back and relabel that beer. We um, took it on the chin and reissued the beer with a new label. It's a good beer, no censorship instead of good beer, no shit. And that ran for three years while at the same time, the ACLU um, took up our cause because they thought it was a violation of, uh, of free speech uh, and art. And so uh, it took us three years, but we ended up winning the right to put that back on the label. And so, of course, um, you know, good beer, no shit uh, has to appear on the throwback pack version as well. So. You know, good beer, no censorship, good beer, no shit. Uh, Road Dog is, uh, is ver uh, very much, even back then in 1996, 1997, very much part of who we are, our, the identity of our brewery and the fact that we don't, um, you know, we stand for something, we don't back down, and we're not afraid uh, to fight for what we believe in. And in this instance, it happens to be whatever Ralph wants to put on the label <laughs> is what we're willing to fight with because at the end of the day, it's it's art, and you can't censor art. And... Um, that's a big part of our brewery's DNA and it, it still is today. So I found it interesting that, um, Ralph was just, just earlier this week at the brewery for the first time, or at least the Maryland brewery. Yes, that is, uh, yes, he's been to, he went to the Denver brewery, I think back in the day. And, um, yeah, I mean, Ralph is, he's 82 years old. He lives in, uh, he's very much still active. I mean, he's got a lot of huge projects going on right now. But yeah, um, he lives just outside of London. Uh, so, you know, making the trip over, uh, I've had the privilege of meeting him when 
for no good reason, the documentary released at the Toronto Film Festival. Uh, he came over for that. We've done an art uh, exhibition in New York. He came over for that. But yeah, um, 2018, first time at the brewery, and that was Monday. It was a great day uh, to be at the brewery. Um, he's great. Uh, he loves everything that we're doing, and we love being a part of him and his family. And um, it was great to give him a tour and show him all the great stuff we're doing with his artwork. So is he just there to hang out? At he the was. Brewery, so he came in. We had a. There's actually an ongoing exhibition at the Katzen Gallery at American University in D.C. Uh, it's similar to the exhibition we did in New York a couple years ago, um, and that kicked off uh, Saturday evening. Um, so he was in town for the sort of celebration opening of that, uh, and then he had a, f- a few other events on Sunday, um, and then uh, he came and hung out with us at the brewery on Monday, and I believe he flew back to uh, England on Wednesday. So, um, so how and you have right now you have all kinds of additional. Ralph Steadman Flying Dog merch at the brewery. You have the mm-hmm. and um, some just him the, the his one of his books and then yep some extra cool yeah. goodies that people should go check out. Yeah, all of that is centered around the exhibition that's in D.C. So it's called uh, Ralph Steadman: A Retrospective, and it's you know a collection of his works over decades and decades. And um, you know, it's it's great to continue to see people get interested in his art. I mean, I think it's easy for artists to get sort of pigeonholed into whenever they were contemporary, whether it be the 60s or 70s for Ralph. But he's evolved and he's um, relevant. Uh, you know, I think he just did an album cover for uh, Travis Scott and he's done the portraits for Breaking Bad. I mean, he is just all over the place and he's a continual inspiration for us at the brewery. And we were just really lucky to have him there for one day. So um, next week, the the next issue of Uncapped Magazine comes out, and I had one of the articles was focusing on the use of art in beer labels mm-hmm. and just the art, the cross-section of art and beer. How, how important do you think your relationship with Ralph and the art on your labels is? Um, I think it's, uh, essential. I mean, obviously, you know, Ben's here and you don't, one thing we talk about at the brewery all the time is, um, you you can't go anywhere if what's in the bottle isn't world-class. So you have to first check that box. And luckily with Ben and his team and, um, Matt Brophy and, and everybody that comes up with these fantastic recipes and the quality department, everything like the the beer in the bottle has to be world-class. And so we check that box. Um, then it's a matter of, you know, finding something that makes you distinct on the shelf, makes you distinct as a brand, allows you to stand for something. And you have to keep in mind, I mean, when we, when we hooked up with Ralph in 1996, the, the label design was for most breweries at the time, you know, you had the macros, which there wasn't much, you know, anything going on with those designs. And then, you know, every brewery, I mean, you can, you can feel the 90s microbrew design. It's like a shield with mm-hmm. a ribbon, and it's like all the Clip same. Art. Right. <laughs> and so when we burst on the scenes with Ralph Art, it was really like, okay, there's some emotion here. There's some, there's some character. There's something. There's essence. It feels like art. And I think that holds true today. I think people were doing a lot of different things. Um, certainly Ralph's aesthetic is unique. But I'm I'm happy to see people do more than just the obligatory, you know, 
shield and ribbons and you know ingredients and you know i don't know um environmental mountains and lakes and things that (laughs) people tended that used to do all the time i'm i'm happy to see actual artwork i know you know we talked um uh you know stillwater does does some great artwork people actually commission other artists to do their artwork i think that's that may have been something that we is Stillwater is one of the other we're on a cutting edge with that and we um, f- featured in the article. We yeah, talk about Stedman a little bit, and then um, Mike Van Hallen. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, his work with Stillwater is what we focused on. And uh, you know, Beavertown uh, in London, they have uh, really unique art. I think the idea of working with an artist to do your labels is now uh, more popular than it once was, and we're just you know we're we're thankful and grateful that we have uh one of the most famous artists in the world doing ours but yeah i think label i think now more than ever you know there's over seven thousand breweries as you know I, I think somehow you have to form some identity and you know as a marketer by trade you know a lot of that identity is formed by the way your tap panel looks the way your packaging looks um your brewery experience and uh but like i said uh, it all starts with having a great great beer in the bottle and and we're grateful we have that as well so how what is the process for getting a label design um so it's interesting we um we first come up with the concept usually uh you know actually ben and i and and we have a few other people in the marketing team and the brew team that we kind of work together and we we collaborate on like we think we want to do this style we think it needs to be here how do we get there? Um, there's a lot of other factors like, you know, how do we, how do we get to a place that doesn't cost $18 a six pack or doesn't take two months in the fermenter? You know, there's a practicality to it as well. But then once we land on a style and a name and the name is really hard these days too, uh, particularly if you want to protect it, uh, there's just, you know, with 7,000 breweries, let's say they all have 50 beers. Well, some brew pub in Montana can name their beer, you know, a beer they release once, uh, something that you want to, uh, a name that you want to release nationwide, and it, it re- makes it really difficult uh, with trademarks. Uh, it's more difficult now. So once you land on a name that we really like, then we develop a concept of what we think that name represents and how that style, and we clearly describe the style, and then we send it off to Ralph and say, this is kind of what we want. We want, sometimes it's we want a scene or we want uh, – we're actually pretty specific. We want a scene or a character. Or we want them to be vicious or we want there to be lots of blood. And, you know, in marketing, the thing that's really important for us is sometimes you know, the consumer likes color coding. And so you, know, you can't have eight beers out there that all are dominant red color. It gets confusing, as you might imagine. So then we'll, we'll say, Ralph, you know, we really want this to be orange or we want this to be yellow because we have a – we don't have a blue beer so we want this to be the blue beer and it's like this whole thing we write long paragraphs say ralph can you do this and then he he responds uh when he wants uh basically (laughs) and he basically says uh you know he he basically draws whatever he wants uh with with basically as a true artist would as we're we're never surprised when it happens despite how many times we do it a year um, he takes all of that input. Maybe he doesn't even read. He takes all that input and draws whatever the hell he wants. And so it'll come back and it's not at all what we asked for. But, you know, that's why we work with him is because sometimes what he draws is 
a lot of times what he draws is better than we could ever have imagined or asked for. And by the time we put it on a label, we've already fallen in love with it. And that's why he's an artist. And that's why he is what he is. And we are what we are because ultimately he knows what's best, what's going (laughs) to be on a label. So um, we're just really grateful to have him as a partner. Have you ever gotten something back and just did not want to use it? Um, You know, we've, I'd say we've gotten, We've we've gotten stuff back where we're like this isn't with we can't work with this it's it's unusable it's not the right messaging, and then we start putting it on a label and and it ends up being great you know I I there's nothing we we like send back say no try again obviously that's not how we work with Ralph yeah. but you know there's been like instances of significant caution you know particularly it ends up becoming a practical thing if he he went through a phase where he was drawing borders around everything. And that limits like what we can do if we have, you know, and so yeah, whether on what shape of packaging, right. And And so that became a little bit of challenge colors, sometimes a challenge, but no, I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, a hundred percent of what we get from Ralph is, um, is inspirational to us. Uh, even despite a first, first reaction, I think we just power through and then we end up loving it. Um, his, now he doesn't do every single label though, right? There's some, some uh, at least in with a greater frequency because you're churning out so many new packaged products with a limited release, right? Like, cause is that is that the delineation of whether you have him do a label? Is like what the yeah. level of distribution that will go into? That's a great question. Actually, we're we're there was a discussion about this today. You know, um, I can't say it's totally conscious but there is a there is a timing you know issue sometimes when we uh, if we have enough time and we have enough leeway we can you know, working with ralph is is great and ideal but then there's you know there are some projects that just come about you know my the my the neon freedom Meyer that, lemon that goes I, was, I couldn't remember the name i, I remember the neon but i couldn't I, yeah. I was i was gonna guess that he did not design that label. right and so some of the really limited stuff like i think there's gonna be 50 cases of that or you know house rules was was not a ralph uh was not ralph artwork um bleacher beer so bleacher beer is a little bit different we didn't have we didn't have a ton of time with that beer either but we also wanted to look very baseball and very Orioles-esque. And so, you know, having Ralph do that would be a little bit of a, a disconnect, I think, with what the the customer we're trying to reach with that beer. So, you know, I think we take it case by case. But generally, I think if we have enough time and it's a, it's a important enough sort of year-round or seasonal release for us, um, we always want to go with Ralph, if at all possible. There are instances where we don't, um, and you know, they're hopefully they're usually for the right reasons. Actually, so that was another thing. What is a what was the name of the a Meyer lemon? Goza? Yeah, what is a Meyer lemon? Well, thankfully, our brewmaster's here to discuss that. Uh, Meyer lemon. Is I just love a, gozas now, so I'm I'm excited about this and want to hear more about it. Yeah, so it's just a varietal of lemon that comes off as maybe less tart, a little more sweet. It has. It, it should have like a more refined flavor, uh-huh. lemon flavor. Um, we were fortunate enough, you know, we work in fairly large volumes at the brewery. So sourcing some of these ingredients can be difficult. And when I began the search in, in reaching out, 
you know, I, I got a lot of no's uh, coming back. And we were able to uh, secure enough Meyer lemon. I think it has a very short seasonal window. And apparently there's only like one or two growers in the, in the U.S. Um, so we were able to, to basically secure just enough for this brew. So it's, it's a pretty limited release. We brewed a single 50-barrel batch of the beer. Again, it sounds like only about 50 cases of the beer coming out. We're going to keg some up. Uh, the base beer that's going in is a Goza, so that's a, a German-style, unfiltered, kind of half-barley, half-wheat beer that's, uh, you know, sour or tart and salty. Typically, there's a spice addition. Usually, it's uh, something like cardamom or coriander, something along that line. We're actually using cinnamon and vanilla in this version, so it's kind of like a key lime pie gone Meyer lemon type of deal so you're gonna get those like savory lemon meringue sweet kind of yeah something like that so it's uh it sounds like a lot going on it's <laughs> remarkably delicious it's super low abv so it's i'm looking for forward to trying that one um so i guess that like that that's a beer that's in line with a lot of what you're much much smaller than flying dog craft brewers are doing Mm-hmm. Um, like the fruited sours with lactose and hazy IPAs or IPAs with lactose. Is that, are those styles hard for a brewery your size to do from like you mentioned sourcing. So like in, from that standpoint and even just, uh, cause it, they're, they're, I guess the main point is, um, you don't see, very many at all ver- breweries your size or even close to your size doing those styles of beer um so i guess why why yeah they're all styles that we do usually they are in a limited fashion it depends on the beer sometimes it's a process related if we're if we're souring something um you know, we brew almost 24-7, if not 24-7. So for us to use a process of like kettle souring where we hold up one of our vessels for a couple days, I mean, we're, we're compromising for one batch for 50 barrels. We're compromising, you know, half a week's production. So we have some, some things that we can do to work around that to, uh, to make the, these types of beers happen on a medium to small scale. Um, you will see with ingredients. One of the things that's great about our 15 barrel system, which most of those beers coming off of that are going to be released to the tasting room. It gives us free reign to do anything that maybe someone smaller is doing just in the sense that like we don't have to buy a bazillion pounds of something to just get that character in the beer and source that and find it. And, you know, with a lot of these things, we're, we're packaging our beers in bottles that are going to be on the shelves for, you know, a month or two um, until they're completely run through. And the stability of that, that product has to be intact. So there's a lot that we have to do that maybe the smaller guys aren't doing if they're just serving these beers in kegs or cans uh, to ensure that it's a good customer experience. So we're usually 9 to 12 months out on working on a beer from concept to get it through to the point where it's actually in a bottle. And a lot of that is the sourcing, the piloting, and ensuring that that stability. So there are some challenges there, but again, we're making all of these beers. Most of them are going to be available on a smaller scale. Now you mentioned New England IPAs. 
Um, you know, a beer that we've been brewing for probably about a year is Thunder Peel. Uh, all of those releases have been local to the brewery, so we are scaling that up. We'll be brewing a batch here in another month or so. There will be a little bit of a larger release, so we'll see that. Um, you know, the, the, the Meyer Lemon Gosa was brewed on a larger scale. Again, somewhere in between like what you'd see on a, a normal production batch of something like a Snake Dog uh, compared to, you know, just a, a tasting room release. Uh, a beer that we brewed last year, Strawberry Rhubarb Gosa. We're brewing quite a lot of that, actually. Uh, about 450, 500 barrels of that one. So that one for us, there's going to be a lot of things that we have to do behind the scenes to make sure our processes are on point. We've written some new processes to make sure that we can get that quantity of beer moved through, um, you know, the processes that we need them to go through and not hold up uh, our other production beers to be able to keep those beers on the shelf. So there, those are the challenges. Yeah, that's kind of our biggest, um, that strawberry rhubarb will be... Uh, an actual brew house already set you know it's about i don't know 4500 cases or so mm -hmm. i think uh which will be a that's probably the most we've ever done of a of a goza specifically yeah because i i mean i assume like that was a big part of it that like once you get to a certain scale it's harder to do things that you would think like well they're so big it would be easy for you to do mm -hmm. but like even at another level when we were talking to the um Peter, the brewmaster at um, Guinness, mm -hmm. he was saying like, at uh, we worked for Anheuser Busch for a long time. Like at Anheuser Busch, it just would be impossible to right. make things other than Anheuser yeah. Busch. Mm -hmm. The way everything yeah. is, everything's, everything's configured designed. and yeah. designed. Mm -hmm. like, it's just not even possible to make craft beer someplace that 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 they're brewing Budweiser and Bud Light. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine on a small scale, guys can, like, put an ingredient in a little bag and dip it into yeah. the boil or whatever. And it's like, for us, we have to find a way, you know, if it's hundreds of pounds of something, it's not going to go through a pump. We're not, you know, it's it's not going to go through our pipe work. We've got to find a way to, you know, keep those ingredients from clogging up the works, right? Really. Well, when I'm, when we made the um, mango beer with Monocacy, it was 343 pounds of mango puree, and that was... I can't remember how many bags, mm. but a whole bunch of us yeah. pouring <laughs> bags of yeah. mango puree into yeah. the tank. Yeah. So if and that was for a fifteen barrel batch, mm -hmm. so I can imagine how painful that would be to do a. Yeah, just uh, I mean, as an example, Cujo, which is another beer that was retired, that you know will be making a comeback in in a slightly different form. But the coffee in that, it's you know at a pound per barrel, and we're doing five hundred barrels of that beer, four hundred barrels at a clip. Yeah, you're taking big filter bags, and you've got to tie them all up, zip time, and you got to get them in a tank, and then get the beer. And it's it's like three or four people taking half a shift to you know six 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 to eight hours. And then there's a cleanup on the other side. You got to bring a dumpster inside. I mean, it's just the scale of it makes it makes it tricky. And because why don't um, like breweries your size just do those types of things? Then when you have a pilot system on the fifteen barrel like 15 barrels batches of it or is it just because you're although i guess you don't have very many small fermenters yeah we have three so we can brew on that so system about once a week so and the so thing is that simply fitting that just wouldn't feed that wouldn't feed the beast like you yeah. you would be brewing constantly you mm -hmm. brew year round to kind of brew the volume that you need for something like this and really the pilot system came on just about three years ago so 
you know, we were brewing Cujo obviously before that. So a lot of this is just finding workarounds for us in our processes to get these beers out to people that we want to, you know, we want to be making that, that might have some of these limitations or challenges. And I guess when, like, when you're se- selling beer at the volume that you are, it's, it's just not even feasible to do like constant releases of just tiny volumes sure. of stuff. Yep. Yeah. You just can't, you wouldn't be able to keep up if you're trying to keep that supplied. Yeah. There's, there's basically two, two scales for us. I mean, it's a small pilot, uh, brew release, which is usually just tasting room only, um, or, you know, broader, uh, there's, there's really not, you know, we can't release like a couple hundred cases in the market. That's really not something that's, that's, that's pretty painful for us. So it's either less than a hundred cases, um, you know, or, uh, you know, 15, 30 kegs at the, at the tasting room or it's thousands of cases. And so there's really not that tweener, um, as much as we try sometimes, but. Mm-hmm. So the, will the, um, neon summer neon, neon summer. freedom <laughs> neon freedom yeah i don't know why it's so hard to remember <laughs> i'll have to it's, take notes on that yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotta change the name of it's that. no it's me it's not it's <laughs> um it will that be a will you only be able to get that at the brewery yeah it'll be a, a 16 ounce cans at the brewery probably on draft and i think it's releasing next week huh? it yeah, will be Saturday, at the end of the month yeah it's right at the end of the month yep so actually let's one last thing to cover, um, unless you want to – do you have any other brew house rarities you want to talk about that are coming up that people – Lemon Lime Pills. Lemon Lime Pills is in the tanks now. So, um, you know, there's – that that was a brew house rarity. And when that beer was chosen, I think, you know, part of the – part of the uh, – challenge on my side is to make sure the beer doesn't taste like another similar lager that we have with a citrus aspect which is numero uno which is obviously lime forward uh, so we've gone this is this is a lemon lime pilsner we've gone a little heavier on the lemon side than the lime side but it's it's a traditional pilsner pilsner you know we're we're brewing it as such we want that character to come through so it's going to be kind of that subtle hint of citrus in with a traditional pilsner that's using some some zots um that's that's pretty much the beer yeah i'm excited for that one yeah that one should be good um and then strawberry rhubarb. Yeah, strawberry rhubarb, which we touched on a little bit. That's going to be mostly strawberry for it. You know, people, rhubarb, what's a rhubarb taste like? Well, everyone knows that it's tasting like strawberry because it's usually like strawberry rhubarb pie. Yeah. It doesn't have a ton of character to it, actually. Um, we'll get some color from it, of course. Uh, it has a bit of tartness to it, which it's in a gosa, so that kind of all, all kind of plays together. Uh, today, we're actually packaging the uh, Alpha Initiative 3. So that's uh, the third beer of four in the series of basically just hop forward beers that we're kind of playing around with. Some of them are. It's really know. out of character for you guys. I know, right? It's crazy. Yeah, so it's maybe some new varieties or different processes. You know, we did some like continuous dry hopping in the past. This one is uh, working with some hop oils. The process for like separating those is uh, is kind of interesting, but a little geeky. But they basically it's, dis- very, it's a lot like distilling, right? Yeah, they actually separate it with some supercritical CO2, and then there's like a vacuum part that separates the oils out, and then, yeah, they do some distilling to separate oh, the fractions. I completely forgot the whiskey, too. 
Not distilling. Like, it's like whiskey time. No, I um I made a hop infused whiskey with McClintock. Oh, cool. Where mm. We made a single malt whiskey and put um, hops in the gin basket hmm. and vapor infused the hops. And I've been ending every episode with doing a shot with a uh, guest. Gotcha. Damn. What and the I hell? forgot to bring it in. I'm sorry. We can go back to my office afterwards. Uh, yes. Do it then. We'll do that. So. Oh, that's true. I could just send Graham out to go get it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this version is uh, it's dry hopped with mosaic, and then it has some hop oils in it that are reminiscent of uh, you know some stone fruit. Kind of get some peach, apricot notes going on in it. So it's uh, fruit forward. I. Uh, strawberry rhubarb seems to be a flavor of beer that's getting very popular. Like the, really? The, yeah. Huh. I've seen a lot of strawberry rhubarbs, uh, gozas, uh, or yeah. just sours lately. Just more recently. I mean, we did it last year. but Yeah, yeah we did it last year. Yeah. yeah, like in the last couple of months, there's been more. Like Red Shedman just came out with one. Huh. Um, and then, like, I can't remember who else. There's been a few, like, national brands that I saw that had them recently. Um, ben, do you Ben Savage? Do you have anything from a marketing flying dog standpoint to talk about? Or? You know, other than um, you know, if you haven't heard already, we we've announced our uh, summer concert series. So we've got Langhorn Slim uh, July first. Uh, we have uh, Dan Deacon in, in August, and um, we might have another. We have another act we can't announce quite yet, but you should uh, though. Stay Who's tuned. The third one? <laughs> it'll be September fifteenth, uh, so that'll be a pretty cool act. And that's with who? I can't say. I, Wait, we might lose the act. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and let's just cover real quick. I, I meant to start here, but Ben Clark, how did you get into brewing? Because you've never been a guest on. That's how we yeah, typically sure. start. Um, really, it all started. I suppose I do all kinds of stuff with my hands. I, I garden, I do whatever, carpentry, all kinds of stuff. So pottery, um, I hunt. It was kind of this natural progression of like self-provision and whatever. And these are the things that I do kind of in my own time. But my grandfather always made wine. So in the fall, like at the harvest, I'd help him pick the grapes and everything. And then we'd ferment. Um, and as I got older high school really um you know i started getting a little more interested in beer and i asked him if he'd ever brewed and was hoping to brew with him and he was like no i've never successfully done it it's too difficult so i just took that as a personal challenge myself to like brew a beer and then i did it and i took it to him and he's like oh this is horrible my grandmother <laughs> of course was like this is great honey keep doing it you know so like i just i don't know i stuck with it and i don't think he really ever enjoyed anything that i that i made but that was that was really the start of my interest and it was one of these things where you know you just keep tinkering and it's it's like any brewer you buy more equipment and you tinker with your equipment to try to make it better and you just you know there's the science aspect of it there's the fun kind of tinkering part of it and you know you have all these little projects hold away and then at some point it kind of clicked for me and I was like let me uh you know it was after college I was I was working some desk jobs that I wasn't loving and I was like let's let's do like a beer an actual like beer school course and I did I did some beer schooling uh it was all online while I was working and what did you go to school for uh originally yeah. so uh so everyone in my family is like they're all they're all like in the school system like teachers psychologists whatever or they're dentists so or oral surgeons or whatever so i was like i'm going to school for like dentistry so all the chem chem classes and all of that and 
God, I think it was first semester of my, it was my sophomore year, they had me doing ceramics for hand dexterity. Like working in people's, <laughs> seriously, working in people's mouths. And I kind of fell in love with it. So I like wrote my own, I have like a, like a chem minor and basically an art, I wrote my own art, basically ceramics major. And I have like, I've got some random stuff sprinkled around in galleries, a couple places outside the U.S. but and, and here, but I kind of... I don't know. I fell in love with the, the beer, the beer scene. It, it kind of bit me after college, and I've been I've been doing that ever since. So it's funny. Last night I was um, talking to Matt Brophy about mm-hmm. dentists and dentistry, um, and how they often feel like they're ripping you off. It, so is, like, <laughs> is that taught? Is that a taught thing? Because <laughs> it just seems. Oh, like, I was way too like early you, in oh, it for okay. anything like that. Yeah, I was just doing the chem bio stuff, and then the. Because like the you go to one dentist, stuff. and they tell you basically your mouth is falling apart, and you need all new teeth. Everyone needs braces. And yeah. then you go to a different dentist, and like, oh, everything's fine. We yep, just need to clean for them. sure. Yeah. I was wondering, is like that taught, or is it like there's a lot of unscrupulous dentists? Like what? <laughs> I doubt it's taught in school, but yeah, I think it is. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a learned behavior. It's, yes. Uh, what was your first brewing job? Was it at Flying Dog? Yeah, before I finished beer school, I applied. It was Wild Goose at the time. Um, I didn't realize, but Flying Dog had purchased, you know, Frederick Brewing a uh, handful of months. I think in May, it was May that year of 2006. And I was hired on in December. Actually, my interview, I went in to what is, you know, now the office that, that I, you know, work out of. And we're sitting there, and a piece of equipment in the brew house failed. It was like this huge agitator in the tank. It had, like, bent around because the brewer was, like, mixing the grain too too thick without enough water, and it bent around. It was, like, banging off the ladder in the vessel, so it's making this horrendous noise. And I could just see the guy that was interviewing. He's like, he didn't want to stop the interview, but he knew something <laughs> serious was wrong. And I was like, we can go check it out. And he's like, okay, let's go. So, like, I rolled, you know, I kind of rolled up with him, and – we were looking at everything and I hung out for a little bit there and he was like diagnosing it. And he just kind of, he was like, so he's like, I think you'd be a good fit. He's like, you want to <laughs> kind of, I was like, yeah, sounds good. So that was, uh, that was the start. I've been with flying dog really ever since. So is that hired by flying dog or were you hired? Technically by it's like, you know, I guess, I guess flying dog, I guess it's flying dog. So yeah. Cool. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you for your time, um, for the stories, for the throwback pack. <laughs> Um, and thank you to our supporting sponsor, Craft Alliance Packaging Solutions. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.